This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. The American Horticultural Society is one of the oldest organized horticultural groups in the U.S. Founded in 1922, the nonprofit society is member-based and includes nearly 20,000 avid gardeners and horticultural professionals. Through education programs, awards, and publications, the society connects people to gardening. It raises awareness of earth-friendly gardening practices, introduces children to plants, and brings together leaders to address important national issues. It also showcases the art and science of horticulture. The Society's headquarters at River Farm in Alexandria, Virginia, is a national showcase for gardening and horticultural practices. Once part of George Washington's farmland, this 25-acre historic site overlooking the Potomac River features a blend of formal and naturalistic gardens, including a four-acre meadow, a vegetable demonstration garden, and an award-winning children's garden. For more than 20 years, the AHS has been hosting their National Children and Youth Garden Symposium annually at a different location each year. This year, the gardening educators will gather at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York in mid-July. Both the American Horticultural Society and the Garden Education Branch of Cornell University's Horticulture Department join garden educators the world over, be they gardening parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, neighbors, or formal teachers, in believing that it's never too late and never too early to learn to garden. Today, I'm joined via Skype by Nora McDonald and Catherine Somerville of the American Horticultural Society and Fiona Doherty of Cornell University to learn more about the plans for this year's National Children and Youth Garden Symposium. Welcome, Nora, Catherine, and Fiona. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So I would like to start with Nora and Catherine and get a little bit of introduction into the American Horticultural Society, its history, its mission, and the history of its youth gardening symposium. Nora, let's start with you. Yes, I've been the Associate Director of Membership and Member Programs with the American Horticultural Society for about the past seven years. I came to AHS based upon my nonprofit membership background and quickly found an appreciation for exposing youth early on to gardening. It was these experiences that led to well-rounded kids and providing hands-on learning opportunities, more creative problem solving, encouraging healthy lifestyles, and more respect for the environment around us. We were founded in 1922, um, so we're embarking on our 100th anniversary here in a few years, which we're really excited about. Our annual National Children and Youth Garden Symposium is entering its 26th year. It initially began at our AHS headquarters at River Farm as a way to bring people together to discuss why youth should become more engaged in gardening. Our children's garden at River Farm at that time was one of the first garden spaces specifically designed for youth 
and several of the attendees at that first symposium were inspired by it to build their own children's gardens. And we are so excited to be entering our 26th year with Cornell University. Yeah. Does your membership span the entire country or does it, is it, is it Eastern based? We're a national-based organization. Describe the structure of the, the society and its membership. Sure. Our members are amateur home gardeners, most of them. Um, some of them are professionals. Our membership structure, um, the number one benefit that we offer is the American Gardener magazine, which we hear constant wonderful feedback about. Um, We also have a reciprocal admissions program, which many of your listeners may have participated in, um, with 320 gardens across the country. If you're an AHS member or a member of one of those institutions, you can receive free admission to those gardens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Catherine, tell me a little bit about what you do at the American Horticultural Society and what brought you to this work. Sure. Um, My title here is uh, Member Programs Associate, um, and I have been here just about a year and a half now. I work on uh, managing a few of the the programs that we run. Nora just mentioned the Reciprocal Admissions Program, which I help to organize. Uh, We also have an annual awards program, the Great American Gardener Awards. The National Children and Youth Garden Symposium is, is by far our largest program. My path to AHS is a little bit circuitous. My, I I call it a starter career. Um, I was a a classroom educator Mm -hmm. um, for about six years working with uh, middle school students. I transitioned out of uh, formal education and um, into informal education um, by doing a, a master's program in museum studies. And I have done work in um, history museums and with um, educational tours uh, of Washington, D.C. And I very much believe in the power of experiential learning out of classroom experiences, um, really for people of all ages. Um, so AHS appealed to me because it, it firmly believes in that as well. And um, outdoor learning um, is, is important. And are you both based at the headquarters at River Farm? Yes, we are both at River Farm. Uh, We can see the Potomac River um, outside the window here. It's a beautiful place to come to work every day. Nora, tell me a little bit about River Farm and the actual garden facility available for people. Sure. We have a 25-acre historic property that overlooks the Potomac River and was once a part of George Washington's farmland properties, one of his seven farms. So we're very fortunate. We came here in 1972 or three, and there's a funny story behind it where it was a privately owned property, and they put it on the market for sale, and the Soviet Union wanted to purchase it as a retreat for their embassy employees. <laughs> and the community was up in arms about it, that George Washington's farmland could not possibly go into the hands of the Soviets. So instead, it was taken off the market, and one of our board members at the time purchased it on our behalf. I think we moved in officially about a year or so later. And describe the actual gardens there, the different sections and work being done on the ground. 
Well, we have an army of volunteers that um, take care of our property. We have a, a four-acre meadow, um, which helps, um, you know, as a natural space um, and is really a large part of our property. Um, we have a lot of um, kind of formal garden areas for weddings. We have a wildlife garden we recently <laughs> spruced up <laughs> with our, one of our interns um, dedicated as a project. Um, so we have several small gardens throughout the, the property. We're kind of in a transitional phase at the moment. We're, we're embarking on a planning process for our organization and our property, um, kind of embarking on our, our 100th anniversary. And is there still a, an active children's garden there? Yes, there is. We have children coming all the time um, with their family as um, homeschoolers. Lots of people just come and relax and let their kids explore. We have a butterfly garden and um, we have a pirate ship, (laughs) Um, a little house. I don't know. There's all kinds of things you can crawl under and over. Uh, So it's a really fun place to explore. Yeah, Uh, yeah. So, Catherine, tell me a little bit about the history of the Youth Gardening Symposium as a primary outreach of the American Horticultural Society. What was the original catalyst for beginning such a symposium 26 years ago? Like Nora said, uh, the first one was here in 1993, and it was really conceived um, to be a national forum great big uh, meeting of of ideas and and shared resources for these garden educators who were probably working in relative isolation in their communities. So bringing them all together to be this platform for sharing of resources and ideas was a novel idea at that time. Mm -hmm. Since 1993, it has been held each year and we have it in different cities around the country, um, which has two two main goals, one being to um, to gain an audience for it um, in, in areas where there may not have been one before, and then also to kind of shine a spotlight on some neat things that are going on in different cities. So that's one reason why it's really important um, to have someone like um, Fiona as a partner on this, because she's our our boots on the ground, and and she knows the the community and its resources very well. We've had the symposium in 16 different states, and we've partnered with 33 different organizations. Thousands of of garden educators have attended the symposium, and if if we kind of examine the the ripple effect there, um, we estimate that that those educators have reached about a million um, young people over those 25 years. Yeah. In general, who is the target audience here? In general, it's anyone who is working with young people in a garden space or outdoors. Uh, And that can be school gardens, or it can be public gardens, or even community gardens. Um, the, the primary audience is going to be um, garden educators, mm-hmm. but we also have garden designers that will attend or um, community organizers, program managers, um, even some, some corporate um, type people would attend, but primarily it's going to be the educators. Mm-hmm. And do you find that there is a, a, a good diversity of educators who 
are able to attend. So when I say that, I think to myself, how how applicable is this to really urban educators and their ability to get their kids into dirt or gardening, whether that's inside or outside? Sure. Our audience spans the the spectrum of populations served. We surveyed our attendees after the last symposium and did find that they serve urban populations in large numbers, and then rural populations will be smaller numbers. But we are actively reaching out to educators who are uh, working with Title I students or underserved populations, and we annually offer um, scholarships that are based on financial need, and we will transition some of our sponsorship dollars into scholarships for educators that wouldn't ordinarily be able to attend. Right. Give me a little bit of a list of other places it has been held over the past, and then we'll start talking about what it's starting to look like in Ithaca. Sure. We have kind of reached the the four corners of the country here. Um, Last year in 2017, we were in the Pacific Northwest for the first time um, in the greater Portland and Vancouver, Washington area. Mm. Um, We have had a symposium in Southern California, and then we've had a symposium in Orlando, Florida, Um, this year Ithaca, New York, and a lot of places in the middle of the country, too. (laughs) When you look at the the educators and, and which level of the education system they're coming from, is it predominantly elementary school? Is it middle school? Is it high school? Do you reach all the way up to college education? What is that spectrum, Catherine? Our highest numbers are are going to be educating an elementary population, but um, our our numbers do cover um, preschool and and kindergarten up to um, high school age students. This year, we're we're making a concerted effort. We've partnered with a movement called Seed Your Future, and their mission is to bring more visibility to the horticulture field and to, to strengthen the the pipeline to filling some of these green industry positions. Um, So we have uh, actively solicited some sessions to to target the middle school and high school teachers Mm -hmm. for those students. Yeah. And before I leave the two of you, when you look at the span of time that the society has been hosting this symposium, whether in your immediate experience or just in the archive of experience, have you seen big changes in the need for this education? Have you seen different focus points come to the fore in the last five years that you think are worth mentioning? Definitely at the beginning, gardening with youth was more of a probably a family-based activity or community um, based um, school gardens were definitely not as prevalent as they are today. So more of the focus was about spreading the message of of the the benefits of youth gardening. Themes that were were present in in 1993 that are still present today. There were um, how to design spaces with young people in mind, 
different ways to engage um, young people with plants and nature and the ever-present need for for funding and uh, sustainability. Um, But some issues that have come up um, in the last few years, I'd say um, definitely how to incorporate technology Mm -hmm. um, into garden lessons. Um, We want to get kids away from their screens, but at the same time, it's a reality. They're not going away, so we need to find ways to to use them. Um, We've had sessions about um, inclusivity in the garden, about reaching all audiences, including um, English language learners, um, students with um, autism, um, even uh, there's a session this year about doing hospital outreach for um, sick uh, youth. And then, um, like I mentioned before, engaging uh, middle school and high school um, audiences as they are the ones that are starting to make their decisions about uh, future education and um, career plans. And we want them to think about um, plant sciences as as part of STEM and as viable um, career uh, avenues. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. When were you first introduced to gardening, and by whom? Today, Nora McDonald and Catherine Somerville of the American Horticultural Society and Fiona Doherty, a garden-based learning educator at Cornell University, are talking with us about their annual National Children and Youth Garden Symposium. While the event is held in a different location each year, this year it's being held at Cornell. The symposium is a gathering of garden educators, designers, and other professionals looking to expand their own skills and knowledge needed to inspire and engage our youth about their own relationship to plants, land, soil, and ecosystems. It's lifelong learning no matter when you start. We'll be back after a break. Stay with us. I grew up gardening and nature-loving from the start. I'm not sure I had a choice, with a gardening floral designing mother and a wildlife biologist father. While some people are just not around gardening as children, I also know that for others, the forced labor of working in their parents' or grandparents' gardens actually squelched any joy of the activity, and they entered adulthood swearing, I will never pull another weed, water another pot, or harvest another damn zucchini. Still others who grew up around gardening were not actually consciously shown how to garden or shown its greatest joys. It just happened, and it might have been a little bit of drudgery. And so they enter their conscious adult years realizing they kind of want to do this thing, but they actually have no idea how, even though it was around them their whole childhood. Finally, following up on our conversation from last week with native plant gardener Vince Bellino, there are those for whom gardening or other outdoor activities were just not part of life. With all that said, the number of people who enter adulthood actually wanting to garden or get out in nature is something of a minor miracle. But I think we need to keep increasing that number, don't you? Our human impulse to garden is important. It's not insignificant or superficial or just recreation. 
In it, we find our similarities as well as our own individuality. This impulse is one of our great shared histories and our future at its brightest. It makes a difference to our own mindsets, to the mindsets and culture of our families, to the tone and tenor of our communities, to our larger economy, and to our environment. Following your garden journeys, and we're all garden educators for someone, is always an inspiration. Thank you to those of you who left comments or sent notes about last week's Native Plant Week Love Fest. Deborah wrote to me about dandelions, Solomon seal, and bloodroot. Carolyn described crawling under wild cucumber vines. And Louise wrote of wild roses in Glacier National Park. Mary Van Clay subscribed to the monthly email and wrote in with this. I love your podcast. I read about it in Gardens Illustrated and then was doubly thrilled to realize you're based near me in California. So much of your subject matter resonates in locality, but mostly in spirit. I've been listening constantly to current and past episodes, soaking them up as fast as I can and recommending the show to friends. What a treat. Nice job and thanks for keeping them coming. Well, I will say to you what I said to Mary. Thank you for taking the time to write in. Whether you're writing in with a compliment, a suggestion, or just a hello, it means a lot to me. Being on the radio for the podcast or on air, it can sometimes seem like it's just three of us participating. Me, Sarah, on the other side of the glass over there, and this week's guest. Okay, for this week, I guess that means there's five of us, but you see my point. I love knowing there are thousands of you out there because there are, listening and nodding and gardening, or just supporting the idea of the garden as a cultural connector. Thank you for listening. And for those of you who are called to send a note, leave a comment, or put up a review on iTunes, I'm sending you a double big thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, back to our conversation with Nora, Catherine, and Fiona, working to put on this year's American Horticultural Society Children and Youth Garden Symposium this year at Cornell University. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back to hear now from Fiona Doherty about what got her started in gardening and in gardening education at Cornell University. Welcome back. Fiona, you are at Cornell University, and you are part of the Cornell Garden-Based Learning Program. Talk a little bit about your history and then what brought you, especially as it relates to garden education, and then what brought you to this Cornell program. Sure, sure. I'd be glad to. Um, so I grew up in the Cooperstown, New York area on a small hobby farm. We grew garlic and had a small organic vegetable garden. We, we also raised meat. We had uh, pigs and sheep. So from an early age, I was always outside playing around in the garden with my hands in the soil. Um, my love for the outdoors came you know, very, very early. Uh, I was lucky enough to have parents who found that to be very important and exposed that to uh, myself and my sisters very early on. 
And it's in my genes. My, my grandma Doherty, she was a crazy cat lady and a plant lady, and I inherited those genes, luckily. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I grew up on a small hobby farm and then uh, actually came to Cornell University here for my undergraduate degree uh, focused in nutritional sciences. I wanted to become a registered dietitian. But after a few experiences that just didn't feel quite right with various internships and whatnot, I, I began to wonder if that was the right path for myself. And the pieces came together and that garden education was the right path. I was in Berkeley, California one summer doing an internship at UC Berkeley, uh, focused on nutrition and was really not, not loving it very much and took an evening bike ride through the city found myself at the edible schoolyard, you know, Alice Waters famous edible schoolyard. And that's when I had my aha moment of, wow, this is a thing. This is something that I could do with my life. And this is something that I do want to do with my life. So it's nice. kind of neat to reflect back on that summer, which seemed like a really difficult summer, but yet I had my greatest aha moment career wise. Yeah, that's fabulous. And that that is a good place to have an aha moment. So, yeah, so a magical spot. Yeah. And you so then you found your way back to Cornell as a garden based learning educator enrichment specialist. What how did that happen? And what does that look like as a job? Yeah, yeah. So after I graduated, I found myself at the Franklin Park Conservatory and Botanical Gardens in Columbus, Ohio. And I worked there for a few years. I uh, really got my feet wet as far as uh, educating um, in the garden setting. And then I decided I really wanted to return back to New York State where my family was and started this job at Cornell with the Cornell Garden-Based Learning Program. So our program, we provide educators around New York State with research-based gardening resources uh, along with professional development to support them as they engage communities. We're focused on youth engagement, adult engagement, and whole family engagement. So all across the, the lifespan here. And my particular focus is providing professional development workshops and resources, mostly to extension educators, but also to formal teachers and informal teachers, and also master gardener volunteers too. Mm. That takes a variety of forms. I do a lot of workshops and conferences around the state. We have an online leadership program, and I coordinate uh, quite a few statewide projects. Yeah, and Cornell being one of the land-grant universities and a, a beacon, really, of agricultural and horticultural education at the university level, this must be a fantastic platform in which to send out word and information and resource uh availability to your entire state. So having the AHS Youth Gardening Symposium come to you must be a lot of fun. It sure is. It, it really is. We're very excited. And I'll also just throw a quick story in there that's kind of interesting is I attended the, the Youth Gardening Symposium in 2013, right after I, I had graduated mm. college. And that's where I made the connection for my first job. And that's where I got my foot in the door with this uh, line of work. So the symposium has a special place in my heart. 
Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the facilities you have there, um, specifically as they relate to hands-on learning for this program coming. And then talk a little bit about how you are preparing and um, what people attending can look forward to from Cornell uh, being the host. Sure. So we will be based on campus here, and most of the symposium will be held in our plant science building, which is a rather old building, but full of charm. There's murals of plants on the walls, and it's just a very vibrant space, uh, very conducive for learning. There are a variety of gardens around, so the plant science building is, is in the ag quad, the agricultural quad here on campus. And it's kind of hard to find a place where there isn't an interesting little garden to look at and, and something beautiful to see. We are very close to the Cornell Botanic Gardens. You can easily walk there and that is a public garden very close to campus with an arboretum and a variety of beautiful botanic gardens, including an herb garden, some demonstration gardens, um, some really unique plants to see. We are also, I don't know if you've heard the term, Ithaca is gorgeous. It's a, a very dorky bumper sticker that, <laughs> that many people have here. But it's so true, Ithaca is gorgeous. This campus is amazingly breathtaking. There's quite a few gorges to walk over. When I walk to work, I, I walk over two of them. So it's just a really uh, unique place ecologically and there's a lot to see here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, Talk specifically about the uh, what the educators coming, what they have to look forward to in terms of some of the sessions that you see shaping up and how there might be a particular Cornell twist to them. Sure, sure. So Nora and Catherine visited here last fall to sort of get a lay of the land and to brainstorm with us some things that we could offer. And I think that all three of us felt a little overwhelmed with the amount of possibilities that we have to offer here on campus. There's just a lot. So uh, we have, I think, created, you know, picked the best of the best of the possibilities to include in this symposium. So to look forward to, we have uh, an evening at the Ithaca Children's Garden, which is based here in Ithaca. It's a short drive from campus. Uh, I might be a tad biased, but I do think that the Ithaca Children's Garden is one of the most innovative and unique and progressive children's gardens in our nation. Uh, there's the hands-on hands anarchy zone there where uh, children have the opportunity to really just play and be and play with loose parts. And uh, it, it's a sight to see. So we're very, we're looking forward to having an e evening at the Children's Garden. Okay, wait, it's, I'm going to stop you right there. I want a little more description about this anarchy zone and why oh, yeah, you yeah. think okay. this, yeah, what, what is it? I you wanted me to give. Sure, I'd love to. The anarchy zone is a portion of the Ithaca Children's Garden where children have, so when you look at it, it looks kind of grubby. So there's loose, loose parts, which uh, are, really items for, for the youth to engage with. So that can take a variety of forms, whether it's tires or ropes or uh, old tubes that they, think they can climb in and roll around in. Uh, there's trees that they can climb in. So all sorts of things that really allow them to be creative and to um, play, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's 
it's very cool. There's also one of the pre-symposium opportunities for attendees is a visit to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Ooh. Yes. Another one of the pre-symposium opportunities, which I am so excited for, is a workshop at Gordlandia. So Gordlandia is, I think, an Ithaca special. It's a hidden gem. It's a, a, a place where uh, this woman named Graham offers workshops using gourds. So you can uh, transform your gourd into a lamp, into a bowl, into she has drums that you can make. So it's all hands-on. Um, you're transforming these beautiful things that are grown in the garden into pieces of art. You even get to use power tools. <laughs> and then we also have a, a lunchtime brown bag event with local enthusiasts. Some of them are from Cornell and some of them are from the greater Ithaca area. And attendees will have the opportunity to break into small groups, meet with them, uh, you know, pick a theme that really calls out to them. And some of the themes are crows pollinators, um, growing curiosity through STEM, emotional wellness and learning, and each of those topics are will be tied back to gardening and garden education. Yeah. So that will be a real treat and something that I think is quite unique to this particular symposium based at, at Cornell this year. Yeah. Now, as a, as a past attendee of the symposium, I would imagine that one of the great benefits of this kind of symposium over a multiple day length is the energy that you derive from being within a community of people who are working toward a shared goal that I think, especially if the educators in my region who are working in garden education are any indication, they often feel, you know, underfunded, under-acknowledged, and a little bit isolated. So to come together as a group of people who believe so deeply in this, that sort of regeneration of energy and purpose seems like it might be one of the greatest benefits. You phrase that perfectly, yes. Uh, I, I agree that garden-based education can seem a little isolated or unique, and individuals who do it throughout the country uh, might not have a tight colleague group to, to rely on and network with. So I do feel like the symposium is uh, one of a kind in that way, and in that individuals can get together once a year and catch up and feel rejuvenated, learn together, network together, share ideas. Um, it, it really is a one-of-a-kind opportunity. And when you look back over your history of working in education for youth along these lines, why do you think this is so important that we engage our youth in gardening, in growing on a personal basis, like what have you seen are the transformative elements? Oof, I could talk about this for a few hours. 
But let me try to sum up some highlights. Um, yes, I, I think that this topic is so incredibly important. I think that Nora and Catherine mentioned uh, quite a few benefits. You know, we're seeing more screen time. Children aren't having the opportunity to go outside and form that very important connection with nature. I think when it comes down to it, I see this work as an opportunity to 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 fuel the next generation, generation, excuse me, of environmental stewards. And gardening really is a pathway to forming that connection with the environment in a, in a positive way, in, in a way that's not doom and gloom. I think nowadays it's really easy to, to focus on the negative when we have some, some really pressing issues such as climate change and food security. Mm -hmm. So gardening, you know, is a way to to intrigue the next generation of environmental stewards in a positive way and form that oh so important connection with nature early on. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think um, one of the things I am seeing from looking at the sessions that are already listed for the 2018 symposium is that I think when people hear the word gardening, they sometimes get a very static image in their mind of what that means, that it's, you know, a little farmhouse with its surrounding gardens or a suburban home with the lawn out front and, you know, a little garden out back. And what we mean when we say the word garden is so much bigger than that. It is, it is taking care of vegetables in a windowsill or herbs in a windowsill or tropical plants in a windowsill. It is engaging with nature in a public park. It is, there is just not one way and everybody can be part of it no matter if you have a traditional garden or not. Yes, I agree. And I'd like to even build on that with, I think when a lot of people think of garden education, they just think of people weeding or planting. And yes, that's part of it. But think about all of the topics that can be taught in the garden setting. Just think about it. Anything can be taught in the garden setting. Um, so one topic that I'm particularly passionate about is art in the garden. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that can be a sneaky way to get young people who otherwise weren't interested in gardening interested. You know, when you show them that you can dye fibers with plants, um, that's a, a, you know, just an amazing moment for yeah. everyone. Yeah. Thank you so much, Fiona. I hope you have a fantastic symposium, and I cannot wait to follow up with some of the session results and notes. Thank you. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. After hearing from Fiona Doherty of Cornell University's Horticulture Department and the outstanding array of outings and destinations that the National Children and Youth Garden Symposium attendees will enjoy, I think it's safe to say that I too would like to visit the Children's Garden and its Anarchy Zone, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and Gordlandia. We'll be right back after a break to hear more about specific sessions that the American Horticultural Society has planned for this year's Garden Educators at the Symposium. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. Some of the places that the attendees of the National Children and Youth Guardian Symposium get to go this year sound so fun to me. The Cornell Lab of Ornithology, for one, and Gordlandia especially, 
you have to look up Gorlandia's website. It will make you too want to grow some larger gourds and make a lamp. Go to the website, you'll see what I mean. This got me thinking about how many places are right here in our own backyards, no matter where you are listening to this from. These places and resources and people, they can extend and refresh our own garden educations every day. These include our public parks, our public libraries, your closest public or botanic garden, or farm tour, or farmer's markets your local university's gardens or horticulture facilities, your local garden clubs or plant societies, summertime open garden schemes nationally or locally organized. I know we have three garden tours coming up in my area. They're all out there waiting to improve and extend our own garden educations and perspectives. Another of the notes from you all this past week came from Elizabeth Neubauer, who's creating a bird garden for her local chapter of the National Audubon Society as part of their Plants for Birds programs. Now that would be fun, as well as interesting and informative to see. I am hoping Elizabeth will send photos of the final garden. I'm also thinking maybe we should all challenge ourselves to go out and see a few of the plant and nature offerings in our very own communities as if we were going for the very first time this spring and summer. Hmm, what do you think? You in? If you do, maybe you'd send a photo and tag the name of the local plant resource and I could share them in an upcoming newsletter. Okay, Now back to our conversation about the American Horticultural Society's Children and Youth Garden Symposium. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with Nora McDonald and Catherine Somerville of the American Horticultural Society, speaking with us about this year's National Children and Youth Garden Symposium. You know that saying, it's never too late to have a happy childhood? Well, I think it's fair to say it's never too late to learn to garden no matter your age. And feel free to bring your inner child along. Welcome back. Nora and Catherine, am I correct in assuming that it is the the sessions are developed and proposed and then vetted by the AHS office primarily? Yes, we put out a call um, in the late summer for session proposals, and then anyone can submit um, their topic ideas and a a description. And then, um, like you said, they are uh, reviewed and vetted by our staff looking for uh, a wide variety of topics. Um, We're looking for um, sessions that would appeal to novice garden educators all the way up to advanced garden educators and for a variety of settings Um, and we're looking for things that are very relevant Um, and and i think the strength of them is that they are Mm. peer-led when i was going through um, classroom teaching um, professional development there was nothing worse than than hearing what we should be doing from somebody (laughs) who's not doing it themselves Mm. Um, so you know, it's, it's a very caring and sharing environment. And, um, you know, the, the session presenters are 
um, giving of themselves and, and their resources and skills and knowledge. And it's, it's a wonderful environment. Are all of the sessions, Catherine, established at this point, or are they still coming in to some extent? The sessions are set at this point. They are up on our website. And give me, you know, four or five highlights that kind of illustrate this scope that you're looking for in terms of uh, relevance to what the educators are looking for at this point. Some of the sessions that um, that jumped out at me this year, I'm excited about um, citizen science in yeah. the garden. Yeah. Which going to be led by um, some of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology folks. I think that's a way to um, engage students and make them um, make the learning really authentic. Um, we have a session about capturing community voices in the garden design process, mm-hmm. uh, which is um, something I hadn't thought of. And I think that's a, that's a wonderful way to um, engage the local community. So flesh that out for just uh, just a little bit for listeners so they understand what you mean by that. Sure, this is a session um, that was submitted by the folks that Fiona used to work with um, at Franklin Park in um, central Ohio. And they did a very active um, crowdsourcing uh, kind of way of soliciting community uh, opinions, needs, uh, voices that will inform the design process for their new children's garden. Um, so they will be walking um, session participants through the process if they wanted to replicate that in their own communities of how to solicit these opinions um, and then how to transform them into um, concrete ideas. And an example of that, which I think bears mentioning, is that this is very prevalent in the museum world right now as well. And it is this idea that if people and different cultural and socioeconomic backgrounds do not see themselves represented in a public space such as a garden or a museum, they will not be engaged by or feel welcome to take part in it. So this including of a variety of the multifaceted voices within any community is really important if you really want to welcome everyone. We agree. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's one of the great challenges facing garden education and gardens in general in our country today. I I wanted to skip back just a tiny bit, Catherine, to the um, ornithology lab and that citizen science session. So the ornithology lab, of course, is the lab studying birds and um, their life cycles and patterns in this world and what that can tell us more generally about the world's health um, as a whole. And of course, the lab is the source of a fabulous public radio program called Bird Note, and I love listening to that one. Um, talk about that citizen science session and a little bit more of what people might get from it. Sure. So this session is going to introduce um, session participants not only to the lab's citizen science program, but others um, like it, and um, how to use these uh, in the classroom or public garden setting Mm. where you can 
turn uh, students or, or young people into um, into little scientists and where they're collecting some kind of data um, and contributing that data to a larger uh, research question or topic. Um, so it's it's bringing, like I said, that authenticity um, to what they're learning. That yeah. It's actually going to be used. Um, you know, how many times have you heard kids say, when am I gonna use this? Well, you're using it and, and real actual scientists are, are using their data too. And it's, it's empowering. It is, it is empowering. Excellent. Any other session that you think would be good to highlight right now? Um, an, another interesting one that I'm looking forward to is um, gardening the native way. Uh, and this session is going to be about kind of hearkening back and, and looking to native American gardening practices um, to inform sustainability practices today. So um, really using uh, Native American practices in, in how they treated uh, Mother Earth, Mother Nature, and, and how we should be utilizing some of those practices today. And who will be leading that session? Um, that is uh, actually uh, another mention of Franklin Park. Mm-hmm. That is another uh, uh, staff member from Franklin Park Conservatory. Okay, and so I believe uh, that the registration for the symposium will be open in April. Tell us a little bit more about registration and where to find more information and how to uh, maybe even look for scholarship opportunities if you're an educator listening to this program. Sure, we aim to open up our uh, registration process um, the first week in April. And um, we currently have information on our website about um, the the session options. Um, So in addition to the few that I just mentioned, um, there are 40 some additional session options um, to take a look at. Uh, We also have information up about um, Cornell University on-campus housing accommodations, and that registration is open now. And um, in the next week or so, I will also be adding information, um, like Fiona mentioned, about some of the excursions that we go on. We like to uh, get out of the out of the classroom as much as possible and, and kind of walk the walk. So there will be descriptions about those trips to the Lab of Ornithology and the Ithaca Children's Garden and Cornell Botanic Gardens and Gordlandia. The registration process, we have both online registration and um, old-fashioned paper registration. Scholarship opportunities, uh, we'll be posting information um, in the coming weeks as well. As sponsorship dollars come in, we are um, able to offer scholarships. Mm -hmm. Nice. Let's end with you, Nora. In terms of, you you started off with a, a sort of list of the, the benefits of gardening, and you mentioned that one of your children likes to water. What, in your time there at the society, what do you see as being the importance of the growing reach of programming like this? and the evolution of it to meet new audiences where they are. 
Probably the best example I can give is one of my first symposiums was in Denver, Colorado. And when we went out for a planning visit there, we met with some wonderful ladies from the Denver Urban Gardens. So if they're listening, hi, we love you. (laughs) And they just introduced me to the wonderful programming that they're doing there. And um, one school in particular that they talked about over a hundred languages that were spoken at this elementary school, and it was located in a food desert um, from which was also, you could see the Denver football stadium from the school almost. So it was in a very urban area, and the the people who live in that neighborhood had to take two buses to get to a grocery store. And the work that the Denver Urban Gardens folks were doing was um, building this school garden, and it was doing so much for that community. One was they were growing a type of corn that one of the students recognized that they used to sweep their hut with and back in their home country Um, and you know things like that that really make a connection for a student and connects other students to their experience um, in a way that you really wouldn't be able to do otherwise Um, and also in building that school garden they provided fresh produce for that neighborhood um, and that community and so they they were teaching their students Um, how to sell the produce as a farmer's market program. And so they were literally teaching these community members how to, you know, what what each vegetable was and, you know, some things that these people didn't know what they were necessarily. Um, And the kids were so excited about what they were growing, what they knew, what they learned. They would get mad if you, like, trampled or walked the wrong way around the garden. Hmm. Um, you know, there are specific paths you're supposed to go down. And it also, because the kids cared so much about it, the community knew, and the vandalism was very low because everybody knew that the kids loved it and they took care of it. And that program, from the very beginning, really, really kind of introduced me to what, what we were doing here. We're providing a service, we're bringing people together, and we're really providing an opportunity for these educators who probably are underappreciated in in their schools or maybe underpaid wherever they're working. Um, so it's a really nice opportunity for them to get re-energized, and it's a wonderful group to plan an event for yeah. um, because they're so appreciative and they're so excited, and it's just a really great atmosphere. Once you're there, there's really nothing like it to experience it and to explain it are two different things. Thank you all for being guests on the program today. Thank you, Nora and Catherine. Thank you. Thank you. For more than 20 years, the American Horticultural Society, not far from their own 100th year anniversary, has been hosting their National Children and Youth Garden Symposium. This year, the gardening educator attendees will gather at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, July 11th to the 14th. Registration opened this month for the symposium, and you can find all the information you need in this week's episode notes at cultivatingplace.com or at ahsgardening.org. Both the American Horticultural Society and the Garden Education Branch of Cornell University's Horticulture Department join educators the world over 
be they gardening parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, neighbors, or formal teachers, in believing that it's never too late and never too early to learn to garden. Nora McDonald and Catherine Somerville of the American Horticultural Society and Fiona Doherty of Cornell University joined us today via Skype from their respective locations. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways that people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by California Public Broadcasting and you. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.